Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into some of the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, we've got a familiar guest today. Uh, Matt McDonough joins the show for the third time. And uh, yeah, we're going to be doing a little bit of a sequel to our Kemba versus Kawhi episode. Um, so yeah, so we're going to be covering the Elite Eight game against Arizona from 2011, which is a game that I have a personal affinity for because, you know, it's the game that sends UConn to the Final Four. And, uh, you know, by this point in the tournament run, UConn's already established itself as a bit of a team of destiny. But this is really where things start to get real. And, you know, this, for, you know, look Looking back, this is kind of the point where UConn's position uh, was most precarious uh, over the course of the tournament run. Uh, yeah, so Matt, thanks again for coming on. Uh, I take it you you must have enjoyed rewatching this game as much as I did, right? Um, and uh, yeah, rewatching this was kind of crazy. Uh, you said it pretty perfectly there that I really do agree that this is the game where UConn proved to be a team of destiny, so to speak. Yeah, so let's kind of uh, give give people the situation. So UConn goes into this game riding, uh, at that point, I believe it was a eight-game winning streak, and they had not lost since the regular season finale. And uh, Arizona was in a bit of a similar spot. So they, like UConn, were coming off of a bit of a down year. This was only Sean Miller's second season as coach, and they just took off. Um, you know, they had, uh, you know, they were led by Derek Williams, the eventual number two overall pick. They just smoke Duke in the Sweet 16 immediately following UConn's big win against Kawhi and San Diego State. And this game was like, you know, nobody really expected either of these teams to be here. But, you know, Arizona and UConn obviously both have some really good history. So it was a really cool matchup and um, one that definitely lived up to the hype on the court for sure. Yeah, that's a crazy thing looking back to how Miller, um, you know, he's kind of somehow withstood the test of uh, time and NCAA allegations at Arizona um, up, you know, until today. Um, he's still there somehow, but for his second year, the jump they made, um, and then, you know, UConn and Arizona, neither teams are really thought of to be uh, the, you know, two teams coming out of that region with Duke and San Diego State both there um, in Anaheim. So it was a great game with, um, you know, two two teams that up until that point had really been playing their best basketball this season and had beaten the best teams in the regional to get there. Yeah, no, you're for sure. I mean, I think Arizona was the five seed. UConn comes in as the three seed. And obviously by now, UConn has sort of proven that they're not some kind of flash in the pan. But I definitely do remember, like, coming into this game, I don't really, the narrative, there wasn't really much of a narrative, actually. Like, UConn should have, by now, definitely been considered a favorite. But, you know, Derek Williams had just put on a really, really impressive performance against Duke. And I have to be honest, I mean, Arizona had the home court advantage, for sure. Like, San Diego State brought it. But Arizona, they they weren't too far off. That place was buzzing with uh, Arizona fans. Um, so being there was uh, in person, it was definitely like, OK, like, you know, this is definitely they may be a five seed, but this is one of the most serious tests that UConn has faced so far this season. Yeah, Vermont even said um, the predominant Arizona crowd. And like you mentioned, it wasn't as big of a, an advantage as the San Diego State game, maybe. But um, the game just you, it felt like an Elite Eight game for sure. I remember um Watching the uh, the excuse me Butler Florida Elite Eight game in the press room before, and like Bob Ryan and Michael Wilbon 
were in the press room, and that was an exciting finish. And that was kind of cool, especially growing up watching those guys on Around the Horn and uh, PTI and reading them. So it, even the press at the Elite Eight game, it, it felt like a bigger stage. Um, well, I know they showed them on camera during the telecast, but I, I don't know if you saw them walking in to the press um, entrance. Luke Walton was in front of us. Not sure if you remember that, but it, it was such a bigger buildup, um, not necessarily narrative-wise, but certainly the stage. With the birth to the Final Four, um, it everything kind of seemed way more real. Um, not that we hadn't been enjoying our basketball odyssey up until that point, um, but at least for me, that was kind of it was cool um, from the start to the finish and thereafter. Oh, absolutely! No, it's funny. Like the NCAA tournament was such a winding journey because, like you know, the first round in Washington, you know, they beat Bucknell, and that game was fun, but it was. I mean, by compared to the Big East tournament, it was de- kind of a foregone conclusion. And then, you know, you beat Cincinnati, which was also fun, but like, you know, that rivalry hadn't quite taken on the significance it took on later on. You know, beating Mick Cronin was fun, but it, it, I, you know, it was sort of expected at that point compared to, you know, later in the American Athletic Conference era. You know, and then the San Diego State game, like, we didn't really appreciate what Kawhi Leonard was going to be just yet. So that was like a huge, huge deal. But this was definitely the first time where, you know, you start seeing the national people show up. And I don't know if this really happened with you, but it didn't really quite register to me that if they won that game, they were going to the Final Four until basically we got on the flight to Houston the next week. Like, it definitely didn't quite... The the, the gravity of the situation definitely... It didn't hit me for a while. I don't think it even really hit me even after the game was over. Although, I don't know, obviously you might disagree because, like, you know... After that shot, after the Jamel Horn three doesn't go in at the end, I don't know about you, but I was like shaking. Like it was like, oh my God, like I can't believe that they almost just let this slip away. Well, it was surreal for sure because that's the thing. Um, and this was obviously for uh, Kemba as well as us, our junior year at UConn. And I remember watching when they beat Missouri in the Elite Eight. And that was when they had a lot of the regional sites in the football stadiums that would go on to host future regionals and Final Fours. So when they beat Missouri, they were playing at the Cardinals Stadium in Glendale. And I remember they had the curtain up, and it was in this cavernous um, football stadium with a lot of empty seats, um, you know, impossible to fill for an Elite Eight game. And this was a madhouse. Um, We had... You know, it was in a, an NBA, well, technically an NHL arena, but an NBA-style arena, and it was almost uh, kind of a throwback to, um, you know, what it was like growing up watching a neutral site game um, in a basketball arena, a raucous crowd, and for the way it ended with the miss three and for UConn to win by two and the celebration that ensued, it was it, it doesn't hit you really um, like you said because you're kind of in shock one that they won and more so than um, you know watching them beat Missouri as a freshman by a few you know a few more points there it, it didn't really hit you because up until the very last second Arizona looked like you had a you know legit and re- very real shot at advancing. So you're almost thinking about just individually they have to win this game rather than, you know, they win this game, 
Um, they're going to the Final Four next week. It's tough to look ahead when it comes right down to the wire like that. And like you said, even rewatching it, it's still crazy to see, um, you know, how that was such a great Elite Eight game. Not that it's very forgotten, but, you know, it was such a good game um, years later looking back and certainly rewatching it. Yeah, a lot of big runs for both teams. Uh, neither team, you know, ever really let the other get too, too far ahead. I think, I, I don't believe uh, either team held a double digit lead. And if they did, it was never for more than a couple minutes at a time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it really occurred to me until later. Like, I never believed that they could possibly lose this game. Because I, I think just in the moment, it just felt like such a dream ride that like, oh, yeah, obviously, like, you know, you know, Kemba by this point had proven to everybody what he was all about. So there's like this feeling like, oh, yeah, well, Kemba will get it done. He always has. He always will. And of course, that that turned out to be true. But in retrospect, looking back, if they had lost this game, like, you know, either on that last shot or, you know, just in some other fashion, this would have been a real gut punch of a loss, like maybe one of the worst UConn losses of all time. So we may have dodged a bit of a bullet there because could you imagine what that flight home from L.A. would have been like if they had lost this game? I, I can't even imagine. No, I mean, it wouldn't have been pleasant, that's for sure. I think the way this season, a good comparison would probably be the 1980. 990 dream season where um you know although at the time UConn I'm sure aspired to be the national champion that season but the expectations of that team um you know from people who were there and were more coherent um than uh you know people our age in in that season it was such a wild ride and then they of course win the sweet 16 game at the Meadowlands on the Scott Burrell pass to Tate George over Clemson, and then the next game, Leitner ends their season with a buzzer beater, and UConn's left out of the Final Four. I'm sure, you know, we would have looked back at the Kemba season as a great, um, you know, experience in terms of the five games in five days Big East Championship, getting three tournament wins, but it it wouldn't have done... um, this, it wouldn't have been the same, obviously, and it wouldn't have had the same um, kind of aura to it almost a decade later, for sure. I mean, that's the funny thing. Um, you know, I was reading a Globe article uh, about Kemba, um, and the Globe, I think, wrote it in um, anticipation of the Celtics playoffs, but it was published at some point during this quarantine, and it highlighted that Kemba's last year at UConn and talked about how he told family and friends after they won the Big East tournament um, that uh, he knew they were going to win the whole thing, which is, um, you know, basketball players, in addition to an incredible work ethic and talent, they need confidence to achieve um, the amount of success they've had. But, uh, you know, Kemba, I'm sure, and the other players definitely aspire to win it all, and I'm sure got the confidence after the five games in five days um, but the expectations still were not that they would definitely win it nationally. I think you and I probably were more optimistic and more excited um, tra- uh, traveling as well as following them all year. But um, this game really kind of, at least in terms for me personally, like I kind of, after they beat Arizona, there, there was really no doubt that they would pull off the whole thing, um, especially I'm a big Calipari hater and then Butler as good as they were in being there the year before. Um, 
both those teams after beating how good Williams was, how loaded San Diego State and Arizona were. Um, this this was really the game that I think catapulted them in my eyes that they were for sure going to win it. But it's funny, like the aspiration versus expectation difference, um, you know, between kind of hoping they'd do it and then after this game really expecting them to do it. Yeah, the comparison to the dream season is an interesting one. Cause, uh, and also, I like the, the, what was the phrasing you had? Like people who are more like aware or something or other than we were. I don't, I don't know about you, but we, neither of us were born yet for that run. Right. Not we. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to. Yeah, so we I, were both born, born like yet. six months later or like three months yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's funny because, um, being here in Hamden, uh, Scott Perel's hometown, a lot of people, um, still remember him fondly, but yeah, I mean, I've spoken to whether it be a train on a train ride to MSG, um, or just, random alums at games and you know people around town or neighbors all you know pretty much UConn fans across the state if they're old enough it is funny how they talk about the 89-90 season and I'm you know I'm sure it's very similar in their eyes to how we talk about the Kemba Walker run it's just funny how the the dream season since they hadn't made a final four hadn't won anything yet it was kind of like when the Whalers threw a parade for like advancing to the second round or whatever it was. Oh, UConn basketball, that was where it started. Um, you know, Kellen had just won the NIT a couple years before with Robinson. And then that year, um, you know, they did so well. And then the whole 90s is when uh, it set the stage for the three national championships. But at the time, it was, you know, UConn had the two titles. And I, I at least thought a Final Four berth is something you celebrate. You know, an Elite Eight loss, like you said, would would have been gut-wrenching um, for sure. And it w- definitely would have marred the memory um, of the season slightly. Well, the thing, the thing with the season and the dream season is, like, they both definitely kind of came out of nowhere. Like, you know, the 90 dream season, like, sure, UConn had been building towards that. But, you know, that team had, it was basically an entirely, it's an, a whole bunch of underclassmen for the most part. And actually, the funny thing is this team was very similar. Um, you know, you go back looking through uh, the roster, you have eight underclassmen in your rotation. You have Kemba. And then you have uh, like Okwandu and Beverly, the two seniors, and that was pretty yeah. much your your team. So obviously Kemba was like the guy, but almost everybody else who was like you know a major factor was either a freshman or like you know Oriaki was a sophomore and Coombs McDaniel's. I guess you know he yeah he had his moments too. Like I think I read a stat somewhere, and I don't know if this isn't necessarily still the case, but that UConn team I think is still the youngest team to ever win a national title, which is you know, wild when you consider like you have your, your Kentuckys and you know, what Duke has become their, their program these days, it's these one and done factories. And yet the team that did it the best ever was the 2011 UConn team. And there weren't even any one and dones on that side on that squad. So it is funny, just kind of just how unexpected it was and how, how much fun, like this season was so, so, so much, such a blast to cover. I mean, you know, we coming into the season, we're like, yeah, I hope they're good. And then, you know, they won it all. It was crazy. Yeah, and you and you just kind of keep riding the magic carpet. It's funny this game, like you said, and we'll get into it, I'm sure. But the the end, it's like this is really, um, you know, who they're destined to be. If they don't if they don't lose this game at the end, then you know, I, it would have been a shocker for them to lose any game. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, this game also kind of illustrates how important luck is too. Like 
you know, UConn was incredibly talented, incredibly gutsy. They worked hard. They were well coached. But a lot of things went well for him. And I mean, when it comes down to it, all it took, Jamel Horn, if he makes that shot, it's over. So, you know, you have to, everything has to break right. And this game was kind of a microcosm of their season just because of the way, you know, they did everything they could, they had to do to win. And then, you know, enough other things went right that they were able to pull it off. Um, yeah. So do you want to uh, dive into the game itself or you got any other? All right, cool. So, um, when we started watching this game, uh, we actually, unlike the Sweet 16 game, we actually were able to catch this one from start to finish, um, seeing as that we weren't trying to quite literally race across the country like we were for the Sweet 16. And you can check out the Kemba versus Kawhi episode for that whole story. Um, Arizona absolutely bodied UConn in the first like five minutes of the game. It was, I don't remember it being that bad, but rewatching it, I was like, oh boy, like everything like that, all of UConn's weaknesses were really on display and it was, you know... Knowing how it ends, it's like, okay, we know it's going to be fine, but geez, like they they had like 10 offensive rebounds in like the first four, five minutes. It was pretty crazy. I, I'm not even sure if that's an exaggeration. It was like a shocking amount of offensive rebounds for Arizona. Yeah, Arizona really took it to them in the paint and um, like you said, on the offensive glass. And the whole thing too, um, you know, it, it, it did eerily look like the beginning of the Kawhi San Diego State game because... Um, Williams comes out, and I think he he makes the uh, first basket. Oriaki goaltended, um, and then you know had he not gotten into foul trouble, who knows how the game would have gone. But um, you know Arizona certainly uh, made their presence felt early and often. Yeah, oh for sure. So I mean, it starts off a four nothing run, winds up being seven to one, then nine to one. I think eventually. Uh, it got up to 18 to 10. That was sort of the point where the game started to flip. But before that point, I mean, Kemba was missing everything. You know, nobody else was really able to buy a basket either. And just like Arizona was getting three or four shots per possession. It was like they were missing a bunch. But, you know, when, you, when you're cleaning up the offensive glass like that, it doesn't matter. You're just going to – the shots are eventually going to fall, and they did. Um but yeah, I mean, the game really did turn on uh, Derek Williams getting in foul trouble. And uh, his second one came at, uh, it was 10.36 to play in the first. So the Arizona was up by eight at that point. And then they just went cold. They scored two points in the next six plus minutes and UConn just just took it right at him. Uh, I think it was a nine to nothing run to um, take the lead that uh, Shabazz hits a three, gets a steal and a layup, really kind of capped off the, the run and then you're off to the races. I mean, it was like, you know, Arizona, like they had some talent, but they were kind of a one-man team too. Like, you know, not that UConn was a one-man team, but like Kemba was obviously the guy and Derek Williams was very much the same kind of thing for the Wildcats too. Yeah, I mean, Solomon Hill, who um, is still in the NBA, I believe, he only, he had a very quiet game, but Derek Williams was the guy. And, um, and I don't want to use the phrase, you know, the, the defense he was playing, I think he picked up his second foul on a, a reach, um, you know, probably 10, 15 feet away from the basket. Just kind of a, a play you don't really need. And for um, that second foul, um, the 9-0 run, like you mentioned after it, it really uh, took the air out of Arizona for a few minutes. Um, you know, the Shabazz three, then one man uh, press to pick, do a pocket and lay up to – uh, take the lead that that was huge um but for williams to only play seven minutes in the first half um 
because he comes back in and I think picks up his third foul with uh, under six minutes left. And that was probably the worst play um, uh, of the night for him because Okwandu got got a pass in the paint and had a, an easy wide open dunk. And instead of just letting him have the two points, Williams just does a, a silly reach and just clips his hand going up. And I know Okwandu wasn't um, the surest free throw shooter. He only made one of two after the foul. But if you're the guy like Derek Williams, you needed a little more awareness there to realize you already have two fouls. Okwandu, give him the dunk and and let the you know the foul. He didn't even he barely. Um, you know, did anything? I know it. I know he uh, wants to look like he's contesting the shot, um, but it just really kind of hurt Arizona for the rest of the half um, because your bit your your guy playing only seven minutes in, in the first half of an Elite Eight game is not going to help your team. Giving up a dunk to trade off those minutes um, would have been fair. Yeah, um, that that play was a disaster. Um, I think that's Sean Miller's fault. He should not have been in the game. They should have, uh, if they're going to bring him back, they should have sat him for longer than the three minutes or whatever it was. And I mean, obviously, yeah, UConn goes on the run, but you know, we we you know saw this in the 2004 semifinals where Okafor has the two fouls really, really early, and Calhoun just sat him. And you know, Duke made their big run. Didn't matter. They needed him, and you know, they got him. So Derek Williams was that kind of player for Arizona. And obviously he should have, that was a, just a, a terrible, terrible decision to foul Kwandu of all people in that play. But yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of chuck that up as a coaching mistake, honestly. Like if he's not in the game, he doesn't have a chance to do that. And then you kind of live to fight another day, I guess. But I don't know. I mean, he didn't foul out. So maybe, maybe Sean was right. I don't, I don't really know. What, what do you think about the, the logic there? Well, I mean, now that you mention it, I think I definitely, um, blame the uh, coach uh, making north of a million over the sophomore for sure. Um, But I, I, yeah, that's definitely, um, I don't think it's at the top of the list for Sean Miller's various mistakes while being the Arizona coach over the years. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing, like you mentioned with Calhoun, that was his role um, pretty much for uh, between 04, you know, his whole tenure at UConn, if you got two, it was a quick hook and you waited on the bench um, especially too in the NBA, I think it's a little bit different where these guys, the guys are professionals and kind of need to learn how to play with fouls and play through it. But like you said, these are college kids and, um, Miller could have kept him on the bench and then maybe saved him. But either way, like you said, he did go off in the second half where they, uh, the game wasn't put away in the first half by either team. No. So in the, uh, so by halftime, UConn's up 32, 25, it had wound up being like a 22 to seven run since the uh, second Williams foul. And, um, you know, it looked good. I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt pretty good going in halftime. Uh, UConn, they're, they're certainly getting offense from more people. You know, the thing with the San Diego state game was it was basically Kemba and lamb scoring virtually all the points. That wasn't really the case in this one, but you know, Kemba, he, he had bounced back. He had a really bad start. And one of the great things I noticed is he, he was uh, one for six from three. He only attempts one three in the second half. So he kind of figured out, okay, like this isn't really working for me like it was the other day. So let's try to change things up. And, uh, you know, that increased efficiency. He winds up finishing with 20 points. It's a pretty good game for him, you know, c- considering the slow start, all things considered. 
So, um, you know, Shabazz obviously was tremendous in the first half, and Lamb was kind of... I, I don't feel like there's very many games where he's just, like, explosively good. Like, you always look at look back and you're like, oh, yeah, he was, like, quietly efficient and, you know, did a lot of good things. Um, second half, we have a kind of a, more of the same. You know, Arizona starts with a big run. They tie the game on a 9 to nothing run, and I'll make it 34-34. And then, yeah, UConn comes right back with their own run, and um, kind of back and forth they go the rest of the way. Um, I want to talk about the Arizona crowd at this point, though, because the point where Arizona kind of re- you know ties the game after the after halftime, it was like banging in that place. Um, I have to give Arizona fans credit. I mean, their campus is not that close to you know to Anaheim like you know like San Diego State is, and they they packed that place and they made their presence felt, especially after those runs. Yeah, Perry was doing it by himself for a while there. He he had a six over on himself for a couple minutes. Um at the 17-minute mark. And, yeah, I mean, that, the uh, timeout under, uh, well, the under-16 timeout, UConn was still up by three, um, or had gone up by three, excuse me. But um, I think the thing with Arizona, uh, the way UConn ended the half there with Kemba making a three, they're up seven. Um, Kemba does his bullseye celebration, and then coming out of the uh, half, uh, Oriaki gets a dunk off a Kemba assist. Um, so UConn had a nine-point lead, and then it, for Arizona to have the 9-0 run to answer, not only did it wake the crowd up, um, but it certainly helped the players uh, for Arizona stay in it the rest of the game. I think even um, Vern Lundquist uh, said how um, – and Arizona had some thunderous dunks throughout the game, but I think both Perry and Williams – um, Vern mentioned how uh, dunking, even though is only two points, and that's a line I love to say myself, that it's still just two points, it really did pump up the players and the crowd um, to the point where uh, at certain points in the second half, it looked like Arizona was on the cusp of either um, not putting it away, but breaking it slightly open um, from UConn, but UConn would always quickly answer and push the lead um, themselves. So the back and forth of the second half was what was really exciting. And uh, not only did, would Williams have thunderous dunks throughout the year, especially against um, uh, Duke the two, two nights before, um, Arizona and UConn both had their fair share of highlights um, in the second half. Yeah, the uh, Arizona's they were so they were so athletic. You know, they they had some guys who could really put the ball in the basket. And um, yeah, there's a point I think a specific point. It was right before the under eight timeout where um, you know UConn had already just taken a seven point or actually no an eight point lead like a few minutes before, and then they came right back with another like six nothing run to get within range. Then Oriaki gets called for his fourth foul. Like literally ten seconds later, Okwandu gets called for his third, and then yeah, th- yeah then they just went crazy. Derek Williams throws throws down this crazy dunk, and then the like the next possession, Perry does too. So that puts Arizona ahead, uh, fifty three fifty two, and yeah, it was um, it wasn't good. <laughs> it kept on kind of getting worse from there. But y- UConn, like like you said, they kind of righted the ship and answered with a uh, wound up being a ten nothing run themselves. Then then they go back up sixty two to fifty five. But man, though those dunks, like I remember when those happened live, I was just like, oh, oh boy, here we go. Like, you know, we don't like UConn's biggest weakness was like their front court, like collectively. Like, you know, Oriaki and Okwandu were like good players, but 
you know, when you're kind of accustomed to the beat and, you know, uh, Oak, you know, um, guys like Josh Boone or, you know, Emeka Okafor, you know, who actually, I believe you actually met that day. Now that I recall, you know, some of these big, great, great centers, you know, those, those guys weren't that. And, you know, the, the, the strength of the team was clearly the, the, the guards. So having to deal with these, these monsters, I was like, Oh geez, like, what are, what are we going to do about this? Like, you know, we can't guard these guys. Yeah. And Okwandu, um, he played 24 minutes that game and he actually, despite the four fouls, he had three points, two blocks, um, a couple rebounds, but it, it definitely Oriaki's foul trouble that day. And he, he finished with 7.6 rebounds. Um, they both kind of just had to manage um, the strength of Arizona. I mean, I know Williams being a flame out in the NBA, even he's still playing, I think in, in Turkey. So he, He's still getting paid to play basketball, but for a number two pick, um, I know there's been bigger busts, but uh, it's not like he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. So it might get get forgotten how good Williams looked at the time. I mean, his dunk, like you said, he really posterized Roscoe Smith and Okwandu. Um, you know, Perry, a, a good college player, he had uh, some width, and uh, you know these guys were cut and bulky and could really clear space. Uh, Oriaki had a, a lot of strength to him, but Okwandu did not have as much muscle. Um, so, you know, they had to kind of manage uh, themselves staying in the game with the foul trouble and trying to uh, contain uh, Williams especially. You know, like you you did mention with the big men of UConn's past, um, Mike Okafor, he was there. Jake Voskel even was in the building that day, as I recall. Um this, this was kind of the start of where UConn's, uh, the next two national titles, this one included, it was really about the guard play. Um, nothing against Okwandu or, um, you know, Mita Bryman and Phil Nolan, but, um, you know, the 2014 crowd, I'm sure, could compare that Williams posterized dunk to uh, James Young's dunk in the national title game. That that dunk uh, was so that dunk was just vicious. I, I was talking yeah. about I, we did that episode uh, Tim Fontenot and I and yeah I mean that was definitely one of those moments where you're just like even as the opposing fans of the opposing team you're like oh my god like he just he just murdered the poor guy. Yeah, but at the end of the day, uh, luckily for you, me, Tim, and the rest of all us UConn fans, uh, we can talk about it. And appreciate it because, uh, you know, UConn won the games at the end of the day. That is ultimately what it's all about. And uh, so how UConn manages to pull this one out. So, you know, after those dunks, Arizona takes the lead. They they go up by three a couple of moments later. And then, yeah, Shabazz and Jeremy Lamb, they each go for two. So UConn back up in front. Kemba adds a basket. Oriaki gets a put back on a crazy weird uh, Shabazz Napier three at the you know to try to beat the shot clock. So now just like that, UConn's up on a you know eight to nothing run. Then you know they're up by five, and then I think maybe the play of the game is uh, Jeremy Lamb gets a steal and a dunk in transition, which was kind of notable because a, a little bit earlier he had a play just like that, but he like randomly blew the dunk. So to that at that moment you're like okay like. Feel, we're feeling pretty good about this. It's a seven-point game, and there's only three minutes left. And then, yeah, then it gets a little bit dicey. So um, basically, yeah, the story is, uh, you know, Derek Williams hits a couple of free throws, and uh, Fogg from Arizona hits a three. And, you know, between that and a couple of other plays, you got a one-possession game with uh, under two minutes to play. 
and um yeah the crowd got back into it in a, in a real hurry and then it was just like who knows what's going to happen next um do you remember do you remember what you were thinking at this point because i remember thinking geez like this is like this is it like this, I, I didn't feel like a game that was going to overtime so i was very much like oh boy like we're about to see something dramatic and i don't know if i'm gonna like how it ends no, and that's kind of the beauty of the NCAA tournament because everything happens uh, so quickly. And, um, you know, lots of people who uh, don't appreciate basketball like to say how the last two minutes of games takes too long. And, and this is the opposite where um, even the announcers mentioned how both teams had one timeout each at the time. And uh, Arizona took one uh, with seconds to go. But, um, you know, the great part was – I. I think Vern Lundquist or Bill Rafter, he said uh, it's going to come down to the kids making the decisions uh, with only one timeout apiece. And it was awesome because um, despite Kemba shooting woes, and I know he did finish 7 of 17 after the poor start. And like you said, him, 1 of 7 from 3 for the game, but him really going back to his bread and butter um, really helped UConn in the second half. But when they... Uh, are up three and he drains the fadeaway. It's I think the shot clock was at seven seconds to put them up five with uh, one fifteen left. Um, that was you know a huge money shot. Um, like you said, Lamb had been making the plays at that point. Uh, his dunk I also starred that um, steal in full court, um, coast to slam. Uh, with under three left. And then even later um, in the second half with two and change, he did a nice give and go with Oquandu off an inbounds pass, missed a dunk, but got fouled and made one of two. So Lamb had been the guy who had scored the last few UConn points. And um, just when it mattered most, uh, Kemba took over. Um, and that was not an easy shot that he made um, the fadeaway to go up five. Then Williams bricks a three, which as good as Derek Williams was, and I know um, this is where basketball has gone today with the uh, reliance on the three-point shot. But, you know, UConn shot 29%, 5 of 17 from three. But Arizona uh, was 19%, 4 of 21 from three. And Derek Williams himself was one for six. So I, I understand the situation might call for it when you're down to five. But UConn had nine team fouls to that point. Arizona only three. There was, just like we talked about a minute ago, there was not many guys in the low posts in the country who could handle Derek Williams. If he had, you know, backed people down, put his head down, tried to get to the hoop, drawn and won, he wasn't the shortest free throw shooter, but he was 9-12 that game. Uh, there was still plenty of time with over a minute left to not settle for a three and really try to take over. Um because, you know, the the strongest guy, you don't want him shooting the threes and being one for six when he could body people in the paint and uh, take it to the basket the way he did. But Arizona ends up getting the ball off the, the uh, jump ball. And then, uh, you know, Horn, who had some timely buckets, um, uh, he only had four points, but he hits the three and then it's a two-point game with a minute left. <laughs> And then that was it for the scoring. That was definitely a hold on to your butts moment, though. Like, you you know, Derek Williams, he misses two threes in the final minute. And it's like you said, if he just kind of, you know, drives to the basket, tries to, you know, be physical, play his game, 
I mean, I, who knows what happens? I mean, it, it's, it really could have gone any any number of ways. But yeah, but when Horn hits the three, I was definitely like, oh boy, here we go. Like, you know, what's this is this is not where we want to be. And then yeah, then when Shabazz misses the three on the other end, you know, Arizona calls timeout with 18 seconds left. Then you're like, oh, that was it was that was terrifying because, you know. Arizona had proven themselves and this definitely felt like a moment where it could have easily slipped away. And yeah, when, you know, when Williams misses the three on the next play, but the, the, I couldn't, I couldn't tell who got the rebound, but he dishes out to horn who's wide open. I mean, how, how long was that ball in the air for in real time? Like maybe a second. It felt like an eternity. Like I, I never, I never, I've never experienced that thing where like time slows down as much as I did in that moment where the ball's in the air and you're like, no. (laughs) And that's how it felt. You're exactly right. Um, It felt like forever. And well, one, we, you know, our vantage point, we were, we were on the side of the Yukon bench, but we had good seats. It's not like we were up in the rafters, auxiliary press seating, but um, the, where, and I think Fogg got the rebound. Yeah, because the Williams three from the top of the key, how it tipped out too was almost like a, a Vladi Divox Robert Ori situation because um, Fogg gets gets it and does a nice drive to kick it back out to Horn. And Horn was wide open, but I think the key too, um, from how we saw it as well, like uh, the the we had a very good view and um, – you know, your heart and jaw is about to drop with uh, the game on the line, but you got to give credit to Jeremy Lamb. Um, his closeout contest there was incredible. I know the shot rimmed out, um, so it's not like Horn, uh, you know, m- missed it too badly, but they mentioned how Lamb was seven feet one with, if you accounted for his wingspan. And um, I think if Shabazz is running out to contest that shot, uh, Horn may have had a, a better look at it. Um, so Land really tried his best there um, to get out there. But once it rims off, too, the the way it, the clock was, I think, when it hits off, it's like 0.7, and there's a little bit of um, traffic in the paint, and some someone from Arizona throws it up, but it's like a second after the buzzer anyway. It, it was just like uh, euphoric from you know, us being Yukon guys, but it was also pandemonium where you couldn't even hear the buzzer. The light goes off and they play on for a second, but then they realize it's over and Chavez gets a ball and they go to midcourt to, to celebrate. Um, it was just incredible. It's, it's funny. Cause I know Kemba had mentioned it multiple times after the game that when both those shots, um, went up, he thought game over and, you know, Based off what I was saying before, I don't mean to throw any college kid under the bus. Obviously, these guys played their hearts out. Um, and in hindsight, you know, me being on uh, my ass in a chair could say that, oh, they should have tried for a two. But at the same time, Arizona had a perfect look at it. And, you know, their team, especially um, Williams, uh, Lamont, Momo Jones, and Solomon Hill were all USC commits. And then Tim Floyd gets fired. They end up at Arizona. After this game, Williams goes to the NBA. Um, Momo Jones transferred to Iona. You know, it had to be heartbreaking for those three guys who had planned on going to college together at, at two different places, stayed together, and to fall, uh, you know, a basket short of the Final Four together in their last game together. 
it, it was, I'm sure, a terrible gut punch for them. Um, you know, so hats off to those kids and Arizona for uh, such a great game. Of all the teams that UConn played that season in the playoffs, I think Arizona was the one I respected the most in the long run. Like, you know, all the biggies teams, you know, they were so good, but you also kind of hated them all just because, like, you know, they were those battles were so intense and, you know, just kind of conditioned to just just want to want to just get them. You know, San Diego State, that, that team was fun. But as like I said, like we didn't even really appreciate what they were. You know, the Bucknell, yeah. Bucknell, Cincinnati, whatever. Like no, no one really cared all that much about that. But and then, you know, Kentucky and Butler, like Kentucky was a one and done factory. And Butler was, I don't know, I, I felt I felt bad that they had to play Butler. I, I love that Butler team. I, I wish they had beaten Duke the year before so badly. But Arizona, like I didn't know Arizona, and at, when it was over, I was like, "Man, like that was a great team, and they really deserved to go, you know, as far as they made it." And maybe who knows if they wound up in, you know, VCU's region or if they wound up in Butler's region. Maybe they do make the Final Four. But yeah, man, it was. Um, uh, I was so I was so happy when they when they won that game. Like, you know, it's, it's funny. Like the ball rims out, and it like it's not out of the realm of possibility that if there was like an extra second on the clock, maybe Williams or somebody could have gotten the put back and, you know, put, send the game to overtime. Like that was, you know, within the realm of possibility, just, you know, it didn't, it just didn't play out that way. Just the ball bounced just high enough and that was it. Yeah. And I definitely echo your appreciation of Arizona. Um, you know, after this game, UConn was 30 and nine, Arizona 30 and eight, but even looking at it historically, and I remember, I think it was two years after they won it all, but it was 2000, so it was like December, Arizona played at Gamble, and there was, it was, in hindsight, it's a pretty bad call. Um, I forget who the big man on Arizona was at the time, but UConn beat Arizona by two at Gamble, and it was a phantom goaltend they called to give UConn the lead, um, and UConn pulls it out, and they actually stormed the court at Gamble, so I think that, and the Texas game our sophomore year were the two times UConn fans stormed the court. But uh, us in Arizona have a, a lot of uh, sym- symmetry in our rise to college basketball in a, in a weird way. Like, I know the Indianas um, have, you know, fallen in tough times, but in terms of, and as well as UCLA's, but if you're looking at Blue Bloods, and I think we as UConn alums and fans certainly consider ourselves to be, um, you know, amongst the blue bloods of college basketball, despite the last few years being tough. Us in Arizona rose to um, the top around the same time. I mean, Arizona's made four Final Fours. So their last was 2001, but they made it in 88-94. They won it all in 97 with Lute Olsen against a really good Kentucky team. You know, they had uh, Miles Simon um, on the, you know, MOP uh, on the team, but Jason Terry and Mike Bibby were the more successful NBA players uh, from that team. Lute Olsen, you know, built Arizona, who wasn't a historically good team, out of almost nothing similar to how Jim Calhoun built UConn. Um, and, uh, you know, in the mid to late 90s, both of our schools became kings of college basketball, them beating Kentucky, who are the defending champions, us beating a pretty tough Duke team. Um, so there's a lot of similarities there. And I think even though, uh, you know, they're two time zones away, I think UConn and Arizona should, you know, have an appreciation for each other, just how they kind of have crashed the college basketball parties as great as it's 
Ben has seen stories like Butler making it back-to-back. Uh, Arizona and UConn, um, obviously UConn sustained it uh, or sustained it longer with four national titles while Arizona only got the one. Um, both those teams became the ones to really get over the hump. You know, it's tough to beat the Carolinas and Dukes um, and Kentuckys of the world. Even, you know, you could put Louisville in, in our uh, category, but they had won it in the 80s. So UConn and Arizona, aside from Florida, are really uh, the two that have been making the most strides in college basketball. So. Um, yeah so i want to actually ask you about arizona so this uh season so they they made the elite eight this season and now obviously you know sean miller i i gotta kind of get the sense you're not a huge fan of him so we'll we'll kind of put that to the side but um Arizona under Sean Miller has been generally pretty successful. They they made the Elite Eight two more times in 2014 and 2015, and uh, I believe also the Sweet 16 and two other seasons besides that. So you know this is a you know been a pretty successful program, you know, and obviously maybe you can kind of chalk it up to some shenanigans and recruiting aspect. But after Lou Olson retires, Arizona did begin to take a dip and. You know, in the 2010 season, the year before the, you know, Arizona and UConn played each other in this game, Arizona misses the tournament for the first time in 25, 26 years. So, you know, they had a little bit, it didn't last as long, but they had a bit of a dip themselves the way UConn kind of has. So let's just say going forward under Dan Hurley, UConn makes uh, three Elite Eights and four, and you know, five Sweet Sixteens or whatever it is in the next 10 years. How we feel about that? Is that like, you know, is, is Arizona a good template for where we want uh, UConn to go? And I mean, obviously, we'd prefer to see UConn making the Final Four and winning the national championship every year. But, you know, that's probably unrealistic. So in the grand scheme of things, you know, if UConn kind of follows Arizona's trajectory going forward, how how we feel about the, you know, that potential situation? I like this question a lot because um, not only does it point out maybe some flaws in my thing. King, but it, it definitely um, can make uh, a lot of UConn fans think about what success should look like moving forward. But like, and I actually kind of feel bad for the guy to to be on the cusp with the Elite Eight. Not only that, or excuse me, Final Four, but like they, they lost two straight Elite Eights in fourteen and fifteen. They had DeAndre Ayton and um, lose in the first round. So, um, and then the last two years. They, they haven't sustained success or appeared in the postseason. Obviously, no one did this year, but they had 21 wins this year. To have under Miller one, two, three, four, four 30 win seasons, I think I would definitely take if we're talking about the next 10 years of UConn basketball. I am optimistic um, with Hurley. I think, especially the way he phrases goals and talks about UConn's, um, UConn's place in hit basketball history. Uh, I know he's not going to take anything less than a national championship in the next 10 years. I'm sure he'd view it as a failure, but at the same time as a fan, missing out on postseason, uh, watching other teams have the success that UConn once did, although we've been very blessed to see everything that UConn's accomplished in our lifetime. It is, uh, you know, it's human nature to be a little envious of the teams who are making it every year. I personally, if UConn makes a tournament consistently, you know, every 
uh, every year or, uh, you know, three out of four years. I think that's success. Um, and then the tournament is great because, you know, you make it and you go from there. UConn's won it as a uh, one seed uh, only once. You know, in 2004, they were a two seed. So I think getting into the tournament's the big thing. You want UConn to be in there consistently. But if they were to have um, three late lead eight birds, two sweet 16 losses, um, I wouldn't love it, but I'd, I'd certainly take it. And the other thing, too, I think that as a UConn fan is tough um, because, like you said, the amount of luck uh, to get a, a championship, whether it be any sport. I know people poke holes in how the Patriots have – uh, quote unquote lucked out in Super Bowls or you know even LeBron James even though I'm at the front of the line um, for hating on him how you know this or that has helped him get over the hump you do need luck in sports and UConn's benefited from um, their own players and coaches willing them to victory as well as the ball rimming out you know that's sports you need a little of both to win it and Arizona has not had that luck to get to the final four under Sean Miller. I think UConn's been blessed, but I really do think that Hurley's goal would be a national championship um, at the end of the day. But me personally, I just want to see them back in the tournament and then you get in and anything could happen. You could have an incredible run and lose in heartbreaking fashion, or you could do what the, uh, what UConn did in 2011 and and anything in between. It's, um, I just think back in the tournament is where they need to be. Back winning Big East championships, making Final Fours would be icing on the cake. Yeah, I can't wait for next year's team because, like, this year this year's team was so so much fun. But you know, you could always tell that they were just like not quite there yet. And of course, you know, we're living in the coronavirus pandemic, so we will never know for sure what they could have achieved in the postseason. But I think at the very least, I feel like they had a good NIT run in them. I think. The way things are trending, I'm pretty sure they would have ended up there for sure. So, um, I mean, you know, assuming they didn't, you know, actually win the American Conference Tournament and make the NCAAs, but we'll never know. But next year's team looks dope, and I can't wait. I think it's going to be fun, and I think just the idea that from now on the expectation will be, oh, no, they're, they're going to have to make the tournament. That's like, that's like the bare minimum. It's going to be nice to kind of get back and have a couple of years of that. And then, you know, like, who knows? Yeah, maybe they do break through, have a have a deep tournament run or two or three or 10, you know, we'll just have to see. But considering what they've been through, just for starters, I'd like to see them have a really good, solid winning season. And then, yeah, maybe in five years from now, I'll just be like, no, for real, though, if they don't win another national title in the next couple of years, then we're going to start to raise hell. But, you know, those kind of expectations are good because that means that you've done something to, you know, warrant it. Um, Matt, do we want to talk about uh, any stats in this game, or have we kind of covered most of the good ones? Oh, I think Fogg's 11 points for Arizona was um, something in terms of, I know we talked about Williams a lot. I think he was the big guy for Arizona other than Williams. Um, but even, I know I mentioned uh, Oriaki and Okwandu toughing it out. Um, you know, Napier 10 points off the bench, you mentioned. I know he kind of, that three in the final minute, not necessarily advised, but maybe not the shot you want there, but the 10 points off the bench, you know, again, Shabazz, uh, I, I grow, you know, for a player like him to grow through, throughout uh, his four years at UConn, 
he always still had the, the uh, moxie and uh, balls to take the shots. Uh, even in, I think, the first or second half, he gets a foul called on him, uh, reach, and he you know puts his hand up in, a, in the uh, old school fashion like they do in the old days to let the ref know he committed the foul, and then he slaps the ref on the butt as he's walking past. For a freshman to have uh, the, the moxie he did, and then, you know, throughout his UConn career, I know he was kind of surly, but I think that definitely helped him um, not only become a, a vital uh, player off the bench and in crunch time for UConn this year, but also, um, you know, in the 2014 championship as a senior, kind of being a Kemba Walker-esque run in a sense, but leading uh, differently. He always did things his way. Um, which I think was was big, and uh, you know I think it's why he's had staying power in the NBA. But Napier was uh, you know definitely solid for UConn this game. But I think you know Jeremy Lamb. I know 19 points off 19 shots isn't the most efficient, but he was two of four from three, three of four from the line. Um, those steals and dunks are highlights that. You know, you see in montages, and you kind of forget where they happened specifically at what point in the game. But like we've talked about in not only the uh, Pitt game and San Diego State game, he, he was so big this season. So hats off to him. And then, uh, you know, Kemba, again, the slow start didn't stop him. Yeah, uh, I have a couple of uh, stats uh, that kind of jumped out to me. So Arizona, they have 19 offensive rebounds in this game, and they have 23 defensive rebounds. Have you ever heard of anything like that? That that feels like that 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 seems outrageous to me. No, it's odd, and I think Arizona. That's not to go back to what we were previously talking about, but. At this point, I, I wouldn't root for it, but I, I'd take a crushing Elite Eight loss for UConn. You know, over not making the tournament, I'd rather them take it to the limit. Arizona here, if you, I know there's not going to be an Arizona podcast rewatching this game, but it's got to be brutal watching because they really took it to UConn, not only points in the paint, but on the offensive glass. And uh, I, it's an absurd stat, but I think Arizona. They really had uh, golden opportunities throughout the game, um, and that's how the ball bounced that day. Though it's tough. The idea that you could almost finish with as many offensive rebounds as defense, though, that's pretty strange. <laughs> I can't. I don't think I can recall that ever happening before. A um, couple of other weird ones. Uh, not very many turnovers in this game. UConn only has five, so a very clean game for them uh, in that respect. Arizona finishes with nine, which is like. I don't know. That feels like a you know a pretty generally a pretty good performance. The last episode I did with Dom Amore, like uh, Clemson in nineteen ninety, they had like almost they had like over twenty. It was like sick how many turnovers they had. So um, you know definitely solid you know ball control for both teams and uh, blocks. This this came as a surprise. Arizona only had one block the whole game. Isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah. And UConn, I mean they UConn did well. I know in the first half, I think it was maybe five nothing after the first half but um yeah i mean uconn finished with six blocks that's what i know napier had one but okwando with two uh tyler olander oriaki lamb with blocks and then for arizona's um uh, interior presence and toughness in the paint they, they didn't swat shots and uh i know uconn's the uh 
the block factory historically, but like we talked about for a few minutes, the, the big men had a tough go of it. But the blocks, that's another thing too with this game. It is, um, when you when you rewatch it, you mentioned the lack of sloppiness. Both teams missed a lot of shots. Like, uh, you know, it, it is tough. Arizona missed a lot of putbacks, um, tip-ins, uh, threes. UConn didn't start the game shooting well at all. But neither team played a sloppy game. You know, like the turnovers, too, it was it was um, a smooth game to rewatch. Um, I know I sound like a broken record saying this, but the, even the foul calls, there weren't as many limiting, you know, the uh, motion of guards, so there were less stoppages in play, which is a better brand of basketball for the NCAA, in my opinion. You know, that's what made this game. These games are great to watch in hindsight, not only because UConn wins them, but um, and what the players in them have done since, but also um, it's just great basketball. Even when they're having poor or slow starts shooting the ball, it's still great basketball. It was a lot of fun, for sure. The, all the games I've gone back and watched from like the 2000. Uh, nine to 2014 era they've all been you know they've all been a lot of fun you know this just 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 early enough in the three-point revolution that it's like you know it's recognizable but it hasn't quite become like a parody of itself like you know the like you watch any houston rockets game and obviously it works for him but you know this is this is my favorite i did I just did I just like become an old man just like on the podcast like i'm, I'm gonna be turning 30 in like a month and now i'm going here being like oh yeah back in my day basketball was so much better oh. hey you're joining you're joining me in that realm i've i've uh, been in that realm for a while now but i don't mind i don't mind saying it and i think too um you know kemba uh i know he shot uh seven this game but kemba's game uh you know and even the one-on-one isos he had a really pretty crossover and pull up he had some nice um really nice tough baskets in the paint one, he had to uh, use just his right hand bank it off the glass in traffic um, while getting bumped, and they didn't even call the foul, which, you know, Kemba was so tough. He'd not only um, cross you over and pull up, but he'd take it and do floaters in the paint uh, amongst the tall trees. And, uh, you know, Williams didn't swat his shot. He, he just, uh, he was so good. And even in the tough nights, he just always came through. Um, when it counted, like we always say, uh, during this season. So, uh, broadcast beefs. Um, Vern Lundquist and Bill Raftery were the commentators, and I thoroughly enjoyed their performance in this game. I don't know about you, but I they're those two. They're just like they don't even give a damn. They just like crack jokes and laugh at each other the whole time. It, it, it's it, they were just a lot of fun. I I miss that particular uh, combo for the games. Um, there were a couple. They had a couple of noteworthy observations that I thought stood out. Um, so, for one, uh, Kemba and Momo Jones were teammates in high school. Um, you know, this feels like a common trend on these these podcasts. There's usually a couple of former teammates showing up from here and there. Uh, they played for two years together at Rice High School before uh, Jones transferred to uh, a different school. Um, and then there, there's also a really funny story about apparently Sean Miller's involvement in the famous send it in Jerome uh, call where I guess Sean Miller was the one who um, passed the ball. What, what's the guy's name again? Jerome, uh, the guy who destroyed that backboard. Is it Wayne? I, I might be mistaken on that. Let me see. That, it doesn't really matter, but every, everybody knows what I'm talking about. But yeah, during the broadcast, 
Jerome Lane. Jerome. Okay. So during the broadcast, uh, they show Sean Miller's kids who at the time looked like they were probably like 12. They're probably, I'm sure, like in college or whatever now. Uh, and yeah, he's just like, yeah, like, you know, I introduced them to, uh, you know, uh, Bill Raftery and they were just super unimpressed. So uh, Sean was like, hey, this is the guy who was like, oh, yeah, sh- send it in, Jerome. And the kids are just like, yeah, cool, man, whatever, dad, like, let's go, let's go home or something, which I thought was a pretty relatable story. Um, so tell me about this. They show Emeka Okafor and one of the two guys, I think it might have been Vern, I can't remember. It was just like, yeah, so Emeka Okafor, he was the one who made Connecticut a Mecca for basketball. And then yeah, every, I mean, everybody it's groans. Bad, it's a bad joke, but it works. Uh, I know it's been probably beaten into the ground, but that's why they're great. It's hilarious. Just two two funny old men who don't give a damn. I love it. Uh, do you have any any broadcast thoughts? The crew cannot be um, lauded enough. I mean, I miss them uh, calling college basketball games. You know, it's great watching these, but you could just sit and listen to it without even watching, and it, it's uh, colorful. Um, but, yeah, that's a, the cool thing, too. Um, you know, them showing, like, Walton, especially at the end of the game, they showed Walton with his hands on his head. Um, but you could tell how seamless they uh, throw in the side notes. You know, even talking about Momo Jones, who unfortunately I know he had transferred to Iona because of an ill uh, relative. I think his grandmother got sick, so he wanted to be closer to home. But um, I think uh, they say a rice guarding rice when Jones was guarding Kemba or vice versa. And then Raftery explains what Vern said um, and uh, how they played at Rice in New York together. And then Jones transferred, I think, to a Christian school in Pennsylvania and finished his high school career at Oak Hill. And then after the game, you see uh, an emotional Kemba with his final four hat on and uh, Lamont Jones is the one um, embracing him. So, you know, like you get the, the uh, note off of the, um, you know, telecast and then you see how close they were um, later on. I did, I do want to mention too, like 16 minutes left when UConn, goes up 34 to one even uh Vern Lundquist uh says lots of folks credit the addition of Kevin Ollie to Calhoun's coaching staff for the improvement in his 25th year which I always have to be an Ollie apologist and throw that in there because um as much as a faction of some UConn listeners might uh not give the credit to for to Ollie for 2014 as they should um he had a huge hand in this champ as well, especially helping the guards like Kemba and Shabazz um, grow as an assistant coach. Um, you know, Calhoun brought him on, and it was nice of Vern Lundquist to recognize that. But other than that, too, I think the end of sequence, um, you know, as crazy as it was, I think uh, having guys like Vern Lundquist and Bill Raftery and then even Leslie Vissler interviewing Calhoun at the half, um, you know, she got a lot of good quotes out of Calhoun. Um, he was happier with a seven-point lead than I'm sure um, he would have been had they tried to stick a camera and microphone um, in the coach trailing, which they CBS wouldn't do. But the three of them were just uh, smooth broadcasters, and even they just let the game speak for itself a lot. You know, they have the calls, but it's not ever really too over the top, uh, even though they'll throw in their own personality and jokes um and uh phrases 
they, they do at the important moments let the game speak for itself. So who was the top dog from this game? Um, you know, sending UConn through to their fourth Final Four, you know, pulling out this, you know, exciting win. Do you have a, a preference for, you know, who the who the quote-unquote winner of this game was? I mean, I, and I know it, it seems like every podcast, um, this is a question, and Kemba usually is the uh, one that would seemingly be the right pick. And you or I always kind of have Lamb as the 1A or 1B. Um, so I think Lamb would probably be my top dog. If if Kemba's the top dog um, in this run, uh, this game, I think Lamb keeping them afloat at times like he had even in the San Diego State game, I think you could call him the 1A top dog and Kemba number one. So I actually have a different uh, pick for this one, and it's not either of the guys you just mentioned. Jim Calhoun, what do you think? Jim Calhoun is the top dog for this game. He's hey, he was a top dog for twenty five years uh, at UConn, so I'm with that uh, for your pick as well. That's a great pick. This, I think, Jim Calhoun was tremendous in this whole tournament run, but especially in this game. You know, you have a lot on the line. I mean, not it was the whole nineties. You have, you know, that UConn and Calhoun is chasing the Final Four berth. So by now, sure, it's the fourth one. So maybe it, it had quite lost a little bit of its, uh, you know, um, immediate, you know, resonance. Like it maybe so, like compared to the Gonzaga game from '99, for instance. But you know, this was still a huge deal and a huge accomplishment. He took a team with eight underclassmen and you know basically Kemba who and let's be real before the season Kemba wasn't like that that good you know he was a promising player but he certainly nobody really expected him to become the best player in the country this season it was like yeah Kemba's good but we'll see how it goes and then we saw how it went but you know Jim Calhoun the fact that he was able to identify Jeremy Lamb Shabazz Napier these guys weren't like crazy highly like renowned recruits either you know like, I don't think any of them were five-star guys. You know, he took this team and he molded them into a championship contender. And this was really, you know, you, you watch the game. They had a lot of great sets. They made a lot of good plays. They were smart. They don't turn the ball over. They adjusted. You know, Kemba doesn't, you know, shoot very many threes when it becomes clear it's not working for him. You know, it was, um, th- this was really, a, I, I thought, um, Calhoun's uh, crowning jewel from the tournament run. You know, he was he was really good in this game. And, uh you know, getting getting back to the Final Four one more time was really awesome to see. I'll definitely echo that. I think making the Final Four, again, aside from a national title, nothing brings more exposure to the school and nothing is as big of an achievement. Um, you know, the pomp and circumstance of it all, to lose in the lead Eight, it's gut-wrenching, probably more so than the semifinal in some ways because you don't get... The, um, everything that comes with being at the Final Four, and for Calhoun to take a while to get there, and in '99 was the biggest. Um, but even when they beat Missouri in '09, I remember him pumping his fist. They show him and uh, Miller embracing um, after this game. But uh, you know, I'm sure Calhoun was euphoric uh, to get back to the Final Four, and I agree, it does speak to great amount of work he did with this team um everyone remembers Kemba and Calhoun is usually the first to talk about uh Kemba um in terms of this run but to have the other pieces play a big part um 
you know, you mentioned the recruits. I know the Jeremy Lamb Peach Jam story has been recycled about when they noticed him at that AAU tournament. Um, and that's when they really recognized him and how his dad hit a shot at VCU when Calhoun was coaching Northeastern. So he had familiarity there. But, you know, Lamb came into his own as a freshman. Shabazz, who had reclassified um, at the time, I think he would have been a, a Randolph having transferred from Charlestown. So he reclassified to get to UConn technically a year early. And he comes into his own as a freshman. Um, you know, Tyler Olander, the local kid starting, Roscoe Smith uh, from Baltimore really took a lot of bumps and bruises doing the dirty work in the paint not getting as much credit as he may ultimately deserved. wasn't an offensive uh, weapon, but certainly he came up huge, um, really had a knack and good court, uh, court awareness despite him, you know, in Texas, he had a really good knack for finding the ball, blocking shots, uh, getting rebounds, um, that sort of thing. And Calhoun took these guys, um, and even, you know, Ori, uh, Alex Soriaki and Jamal Coombs McDaniel, both uh, from Massachusetts, they come in, go to the NIT, and then they they were the ones who who stayed when UConn had a few transfers after that tough NIT year, the pre- previous year, and then the next year they're in the national championship. Um, so it, it's really a testament to Calhoun how far they went, uh, how well they stuck together, and one guy more so than many. Uh, national champions get credit over others. Uh, but, you know, Calhoun really uh, used the guys properly. Even Donald Beverly, Charles O'Quan, who both had big baskets in this game. You know, it, it, it was really a, t- a team effort, even though Kemba did all the scoring most of the time. And Lamb and Napier gave you some offense as well. You know, Okwandu picking up four fouls, Beverly a timely layup and um, cutting down the lane. Those baskets mattered as much as anything else um, uh, in a two-point win. No, definitely. So, yeah, I guess uh, that feels to me like a good place to wrap it up. Um, So, yeah, well, Matt, thanks so much again for coming on. Uh, I feel like we'll be doing this again fairly soon. Um, I think there's probably a decent chance we'll probably run through the rest of this tournament run, or at the very least do the Butler game, even though that game was – I like to call it a beautiful disaster because it was such a terrible, terrible basketball game. Yeah, beautiful disaster or ugly masterpiece. Either one uh, certainly fits, but it, it, hey, it was it was beautiful, that's for certain. No, for sure. Yeah, so uh, everybody, uh, thanks again for listening. Um, we'll be back next week, and uh, if you guys have any thoughts, you can hit me up on Twitter at Max Cerullo, uh, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. Uh, my DMs are open, so you can uh, also reach out um, by email as well. That's uh, yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, uh, Matt's on Twitter as well, McDTwin1. You can follow him for uh, some really hot Celtics takes and, uh, you know, Bill Russell content. And, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, Hope you're all staying safe and healthy. So you guys all have a good one.